Welcome to War of the Words. I'm your host, Wayne Besson. Today, we'll discuss how Republican dominance of talk radio is a threat to democracy. Liberals have foolishly seeded the airwaves, creating a dangerous vacuum that promotes demagoguery instead of debate. We will then interview constitutional legal scholar Brian Wildenthal. We will discuss the radicalization of the Supreme Court and what it means for your future. It's the first half of a two-part interview you won't want to miss. Kick back and enjoy the show. One of the most historically catastrophic decisions that Democrats have made is not investing in talk radio stations. This has created an enormous vacuum where progressive ideas are absent in these venues while conservatives hold courts with endless streams of lies and conspiracies. The lack of balance on talk radio has created the misleading impression that progressive policies are out of step with the American public, while conservative so-called ideas represent majority opinion. How could conservative rants not rub off on drivers when that's all they hear, day after day, year after year? Even if people only hear snippets of this propaganda while flipping stations, the totality of these noxious narratives can subtly shift political thinking to the right. This is particularly damaging in rural and suburban America where talk radio is a critical source for disseminating political information on people's long commutes to and from work. If it weren't for radio, the bizarre ideas and the outlandish policies pushed by right-wing crazies would be somewhat relegated to the fringe. By ceding the airwaves to conservatives, however, we have allowed millions of cars to be transformed into right-wing propaganda pods. The alarming result is that tens of millions of Americans from coast to coast are brainwashed every single day. The New York Times reveals how conservatives are exploiting talk radio dominance to divide America. Legions of right-wing talk hosts across the nation are habitually spewing lies about election integrity. They are falsely, without a shard of evidence, without one shard of evidence, claiming that the only way Democrats win is by cheating. This creates a dangerous dynamic where conservative voters actually believe that the elections are fairly won only if Republicans win. If Democrats win, in their warped view, it must be the result of deception or mass election fraud. New York Times reports, quote, Mentions of Democrats cheating and similar ideas were raised more than 5,000 times on syndicated radio shows and local broadcasts this year, according to an analysis of data from Critical Mention, a media monitoring service. Similar ideas were mentioned a few hundred times on television shows and podcasts tracked by Critical Mention during the same period. Charlie James is a typical right-wing talk radio host. His show airs on Greenville, South Carolina's 106.3. He recently read from a blog post that argued, quote, the Democrats are going to lose a majority during the midterm elections unless they're able to cheat in a massive, wide-scale way. On Virginia station WJFN, Donald Trump lackey Steve Bannon said, if Democrats don't cheat, they don't win. If Democrats don't cheat, they don't win. Here is a sampling of what right-wing radio hosts are saying in regards to the election. It's terrifying, and it's going to have a major impact if we don't fight back against it. Because it doesn't matter how good of a candidate Republicans put out, they're not going to win because the Democrats have got that cheat game down. We know the Democrats are going to cheat their asses off. So what are we doing to stop that? <laughs> Wonderful. A lot of uh, conservatives didn't want to show up on this primary because they didn't want to give a hint to the uh, 
Democrats how much they had to cheat. Republicans are unnecessarily creating a phony crisis of election legitimacy. Democracy cannot work and will cease to function if Republicans refuse to transfer power based on false election tampering allegations. But increasingly, it appears that the entire point of these lies is to undermine the system, create disarray, and exploit the manufactured chaos to replace democracy with autocracy. In fact, right-wing talk radio has already conditioned the lemmings who listen to reject the will of the American people. A typical conservative comment on our War of the Words TikTok page is, quote, We are not a democracy. We are a republic. Democracy is the biggest lie Democrats tell. Democracy is mob rule. <laughs> Ironically, conservatives like to portray themselves as populists who represent the average Joe. Yet their leaders are stuck-up elitists who believe in snob rule, where autocratic leaders substitute their wisdom for the will of the voters. What they are cynically peddling is a gross distortion of the American system. The stunning ignorance of their voters is an indictment of our nation's severely underfunded educational system. It's a powerful argument for requiring civics classes in schools. In my interview with constitutional scholar Brian Wildenthal, he explains the fallacy of conservatives who deny that America is a democracy. Yeah, so right-wing Republicans who say that, that the Constitution is not about democracy, have not even read the first three words in the Constitution. So I would tell them, sit down and read the document that you're preaching about. It begins by saying, we the people, and it goes on to say, we the people of the United States ordain and establish the Constitution. So the Constitution is founded on democracy, which simply means rule or government by the people. And the, although it, the Constitution doesn't contain the word democracy, it contains the word people in the preamble, and when it comes to the election of the House and of the Senate. So it's a lie. It's another big lie to say that our Constitution is not democratic. Of course, we are a republic also, but a republic founded on popular sovereignty, rule of the people, i.e. democracy. Stay tuned for the rest of Brian's interview in a few minutes. But you know, it's easy to write off the ranting and ramblings of delusional talk radio hosts as insignificant. However, we can't underestimate the cumulative result of millions of people being brainwashed on their daily drives home from work. If people truly believe that Democrats are stealing elections as these propagandists are drilling into their heads, many of the duped will become dangerous. We saw this on January 6th when con-conservatives pilfered the United States Capitol in the false name of patriotism. A new University of Chicago poll found that 28% of voters agreed with the statement, quote, it may be necessary at some point soon for citizens to take up arms against the government. According to the polling, quote, 45% of self-identified strong Republicans agreed with the statement, it may be necessary at some point soon for citizens to take up arms against the government. The GOP doesn't hold a monopoly on the sentiment, though. One in five Democrats agreed, as did 35% of self-identified independent voters. The belief in armed resistance was loosely correlated with actual gun ownership. About 37% of those who said they had guns in their homes also agreed with the taking up arms statement. A slight majority of those, 56%, said they believe the government was corrupt and rigged against everyday people like me, with self-identified Republicans polling substantially higher on that question than Democrats. Clearly, the fanatical messaging of Republican reactionaries is not benign. 
Right-wing radio, as well as online forums and television networks like Fox, are promoting a paranoid vision of the world. They portray their listeners as real Americans and good Christians, constantly under siege by minorities and liberals. They are working to discredit elections and radicalize their base, acclimating them to the perverse idea of using violence to solve political questions. Yes, one in five Democrats also believed that taking up arms might be necessary. However, I would argue that this is a recent phenomenon that is a logical reaction to heavily armed Republican belligerents threatening violence and working to extinguish democracy. It's a false equivalency to compare the genuine concern of Democrats who support our nation remaining free to right-wing Republicans who lie about the elections and support authoritarianism. If major Democratic donors want to save the country, they can't abandon an entire medium that much of the country relies on to form their political views. They must invest heavily in buying radio stations and creating farm teams of superior, well-paid radio hosts that can compete with conservatives and win the hearts and minds of Americans. The ideological one-sidedness of talk radio today has created a hole that cultivates demagoguery instead of debate. Sure, getting into the radio business is not as cool, it's not as glamorous as purchasing online media empires. It's not as exciting as producing films for the big screen. However, it's where information is disseminated in the suburbs and the countryside. We must do something about that. We must reach these voters if we expect to be victorious. Our nation depends on it. Wouldn't you feel more confident about our nation's future if the person next to you at the stoplight was listening to someone, anyone, other than a Sean Hannity clone? I certainly would. Joining me now is Brian Wildenthal, a distinguished constitutional law scholar. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, Wayne. Brian, in a few sentences, how would you categorize the current Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court is now dominated by a very right-wing ideological majority of justices. Since, uh, tragically, President Trump had the opportunity legally to ram through a last-minute appointment of Justice Amy Coney Barrett after the death of Justice Ginsburg in 2020, that unexpectedly and tragically gave him the ability to cement a six to three majority. And this is the strongest right-wing conservative majority on the Supreme Court since the 1930s. And how does the impact of Mitch McConnell's machinations, I mean, he said, oh, we can't hear from Merrick Garland. And then because it's an election year, then he turned around with Amy Coney Barrett right before an election and spearheaded her uh, to the court. How does this impact the legitimacy of the court and public opinion? Obviously, the history of the Republican, as you say, machinations on the court are a history of tremendous hypocrisy, of course, and remarkably hardball, bare-knuckle politics. It doesn't technically impact the legitimacy of the court. The Republicans have played within the constitutional rules while pushing the envelope on it. But what I mainly see when I look at Mitch McConnell is that they've been willing to go to the mat and play hardball, whereas the Democratic Party has not been willing to do that. The Democratic Party is played by Marquis of Queensbury rules, while the Republicans have basically been fighting a freestyle knife fight. When I talk about legitimacy, though, here's my problem with why I say they're illegitimate. 
uh, the, the, those particular justices, because millions of people voted for Obama who didn't even want to vote for him because they said, well, at least he'll have picks on the Supreme Court. That's why they went to the polls. And a lot of Hillary voters the first time and then the second time, and there were a lot of people who just weren't fans, but they said, hey, I, I want the Supreme Court to, to reflect my values. And so they voted for him. And then when you combine that with the hypocrisy of McConnell, I mean, that certainly is in such remarkably bad faith. It's hard to accept rulings from people who achieved their status through such remarkably bad faith and attacks on our country's democracy. It's a bitter pill. The court itself has sacrificed, tragically, a huge part of its legitimacy. I think the political legitimacy and the moral legitimacy of the court are in historically, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has always been a bit of a pawn of politics. And I, ironically, I would say that the hypocrisy is incredible. I mean, when, when Mitch McConnell said, oh, we can't consider or debate justice because it's an election year, and then they turn around on a dime and they ram through Amy Coney Barrett. I would say that what they did in 2020 with that last minute appointment, that actually is highly consistent with a long historical tradition in which parties, even defeated lame duck parties, have rammed through Supreme Court appointments. It's ugly. It doesn't have any political or moral legitimacy, but it is constitutional. I mean, it, the Constitution allows for that. If, if you have the presidency and you have the Senate, you have the constitutional power to appoint a justice. The late Justice Ginsburg contributed to some extent to that tragic outcome. She had an opportunity. President Obama was a very far-sighted strategic thinker. He invited Justice Ginsburg to the White House in 2013, very graciously, delicately hinted to her, maybe this is a time to retire. She was 80 years old and was already a cancer survivor. She chose to try to stick it out for another five years, and she tragically died at a time when the president and the Senate with the power to replace her were obviously people who were antithetical to the voters, as you said, the Americans who supported President Obama and who should have been President Clinton. Ginsburg made a, a tragic mistake there. There's no doubt about that. It was the wrong decision. Wasn't Mitch McConnell, though, compelled to advise and consent? Wasn't he derelict in duty in terms of advising and consenting who said he's not even going to listen to Merrick Garland and have meetings? Well, yeah, in, in a moral sense, sure. I mean, his behavior was outrageous. I mean, it, it, was, it was cynical, ugly, hardball politics. But the bottom line is, under the Constitution, the Senate doesn't have to confirm a judge or justice if they don't want to. The fact is, the president is not entitled to appoint a Supreme Court justice. It was outrageous that they treated President Obama so disrespectfully. But if you don't have a majority in the Senate, you're going to basically have to either uh, get down and dicker and deal and propose someone that that majority is willing to endorse, or you're going to have to win the next election and get a Senate that's more willing to support you. It's pretty clear that going forward, probably no president is going to be able to get through a justice unless they make maybe a major compromise in who, whom they would want as a justice if the opposing party controls the Senate. That's the world we live in now. The Republicans are hypocritical. They played hardball politics. Everyone who cares about the preservation of our democratic constitutional system, small d, democratic, has to think strategically, how do we preserve what we have left? How do we rebuild a Supreme Court that will have some legitimacy? That's the task that confronts us now. And what concerns me the most is the Supreme Court is supposed to protect rights. They're supposed to protect the Constitution. That's their 
primary goal. They work for protecting the Constitution. And instead, this Supreme Court seems to be attacking it, the opposite of their job. There are few higher priorities, perhaps no higher priority domestically, than to lay the groundwork to unravel and undo this very dangerous right-wing majority on the court. We feel this outrage at what the Supreme Court has done, but whatever we do to try to fix that, when we come out of that process, as I hope we will at the end, we still need and want to have a Supreme Court that will have the ability to function as a respected independent judicial body. We don't wanna risk destroying what's left of the Supreme Court's tattered legitimacy in our effort to fix what's gone wrong. And so we have to keep that in mind with proposals like to pack the court or expand the court. I think those are not the right way to go because at the end of that process, we won't have a Supreme Court left standing that would ever be able to uphold the rights that you're talking about, that we need to uphold. We need to somehow get from where we are now to a position in 10 or 20 years where we restore the Supreme Court so it's able to defend, do what it's supposed to do, defend our rights. Okay, but here's a little pushback here, and I hear what you're saying, and I've never been a big fan of court packing. However, you're saying we need to restore it in you know, 5, 10, 15 years, but if we don't pack the court, maybe we won't have a country in 10 years. That's something I'm concerned about. So if you're not in favor of that, what are the options we have to restore a court where we have people who aren't trying to create, say, a theocracy? It's a fair question. You know, how dangerous is the court? My own sense is this current court is very dangerous, just trashed reproductive freedom. It's deeply threatening to rights at many levels. But you pinpointed, I think, the most urgent priority. Will we have a constitutional democratic system of free and fair elections at all in a few years? That's the deeper concern. My sense is that even if you could somehow pack the Supreme Court, I don't know that the Supreme Court alone could save us from that. What's going to save us from that terrible outcome is going to be rallying political support and voting and making sure we elect a president committed to the Constitution and majorities in Congress. So that's the most critically urgent priority as I see it, is for Congress to do its job and safeguard the foundations of our constitutional democracy and for the president, whoever that president is, to put an appropriate priority on that. If we don't achieve that, then we're not only going to lose the hope of getting a better Supreme Court, we're going to lose the whole ballgame. Yes, but are we able to have those corrections? Now, giving the gerrymandering, and you've written about this in the States, and of course, the attacks on voting rights. Are we at a point where the ability to, to create these majorities in Congress is beyond our control right now? Or, or maybe we're not there yet, but we're not far from that arena. I don't think the path lies through packing the Supreme Court, as tempting as that may be, if that's a heavy lift. An easier lift, frankly, one thing that is within reach, Congress has the constitutional authority by simple majority votes to do a whole heck of a lot between now and the end of 2022 to safeguard the system, to put in some guardrails. If Democrats use the simple majorities they have now, and if President Biden is willing to sign it and take action, there are guardrails that can be put in there which could 
preserve the foundations and lay the groundwork for a recovery in 2024. Republicans like Mitch McConnell, they've been playing a long game. They've been plotting for decades to take over the Supreme Court, and they've tragically achieved that. Democrats have to similarly look long-term and play a long game to preserve the Constitution. And what are some of those guardrails that we can erect, though? Because it looks like in the states, Republicans are creating a situation that could end in a constitutional crisis. They're having Republicans who support the big lie being elected. And uh, if it's in a swing state, this could throw a next presidential election to complete chaos. And God knows what will happen from there, not just with with governors or, or in Congress, but we look at the secretary of state level. We look at poll workers that they are training to be disruptive rather than to count the votes. They're trying to disrupt them. So what do you see we can do now to prevent this slow motion coup, this slow motion calamity that we all know is happening, but we need to stop? Yeah. Well, so voting rights is critical. Now, and of course, we the Democrat, there has been a push. It fell short because tragically, two Democrats in the Senate have refused to be willing to overcome the filibuster to enact a voting rights bill. However, that voting rights bill, as important as it was, is not the only way to go. There are other things that can be attempted. Congress has the explicit constitutional authority to make laws governing the time, place, and manner of congressional elections. As you said, states have a lot of control over the election process, but only by default. The Constitution says federal elections to Congress are regulated by the states, but Congress may at any time make or alter such regulations. So the current Congress, which is still controlled by Democrats, needs to exercise that power and put in place some basic guardrails, roll back some of these disturbing state laws. If there's been a failure, quote unquote, of a state to elect presidential electors, then the state legislature can step in and take action. That's a federal law. Congress needs to amend that thing as soon as possible and fix that loophole and make it absolutely clear that if a state wants to try to steal a presidential election, they're going to have to do so in advance, in pure daylight, in full daylight before the election and take the heat and take the controversy they would face, the blowback they would face from the voters. Because this is a real danger. Republicans have a lock on the legislature. They'll buy their time. They'll let the election happen if it doesn't go their way after the election, there's a risk these Republican state legislators could try to pull the plug from it, yank the rug out from under it, and appoint Republican electors. It's a simple technical fix. Make sure they don't have that loophole to pull a fast one after the election is over and try to rob the American people. And many law professors and political scientists are losing a lot of sleep at night gaming this out and worrying what's going to happen. I, I personally worry about this a lot. It terrifies me because their entire rationale for the election of these people is to overturn the election. That is the only thing they're running on is the big lie. They don't have any other policies in many cases. It is, I support Trump. We're going to stop this you know, election fraud, this phony fraud. And that is what they want to do. They're, they're putting all the pieces in place with these shills and lackeys to upset democracy. And, I, and I, I don't even think many of them know what they're doing or what the consequences are going to be. But 
anything could happen at that point because people aren't going to accept the results if they're trying to uh, steal an election in broad daylight. But I think they will. I don't think that, I, don't, I don't think this Republican Party cares about public opinion anymore. You look at the Supreme Court, what they've done. Every one of their actions has been unpopular. They don't care. They have an agenda. They don't care. But my, my, my just thinking is we, we want to make it as difficult for them as possible. <laughs> and so. Oh, no, I agree. I agree with you. That's what we, we need to do. We want to flush this out from under the rocks where it's been hiding to some extent. We want to make it as difficult as possible for Trumpian Republicans. I want to qualify that carefully. Again, not all Republicans have given up on our constitutional system. I personally know some Republicans, there are a few, who are still committed to democracy. But Trumpian Republicans who now dominate the party, we must um, make it as difficult as possible for them to steal the 2024 election. The current majorities in Congress today need to step up to the plate, override the filibuster if necessary, which is a stupid rule, which has no basis in the Constitution, and enact fundamental guardrails and safety nets to make it more difficult for Republicans to do what everyone can tell who's paying attention they're planning to do. Democrats needed to stop gerrymandering pass voting rights and do a number of things in order to have any chance of winning in 2022. Congress remains significantly gerrymandered in favor of Republicans, and by bad luck with the economy and other things that have gone wrong, like most first-term presidents, President Biden is going to suffer a setback in the midterm elections. This is one of the oldest rules of American politics. Happened to Bill Clinton, happened to Barack Obama, it happened to Donald Trump. <laughs> also, the first midterm election is always a disaster for the governing party. The only potential change there might be outrage over Roe v. Wade in the suburbs could potentially change that. I don't know if it will, but that is if that doesn't do it, I don't know what will. Totally agree. Yeah, Roe v. Wade was a huge clarion wake-up call. It's like, wake up, hello. The Supreme Court, as you've said, has been hijacked by a dangerous right-wing majority. They, they've done it, you know, as I would say as a law professor, they did it, strictly speaking, within the rules, but it, that doesn't change the fact that it's a mortal threat to our Constitution. But here's the other thing. Ironically, which of the two major political parties has tried to run you know, in this election has tried to make a central issue in this election of free and fair voting, fair elections, and preserving democracy. Which of the two parties has run on that issue? I think you know the answer. The Republicans have been distorting it with that we're trying to stop voter fraud. I mean, it's, it's complete bullshit, but they're running on it. It is, but, but they're running. And so my question is, they're, they're running on that issue based on a lie, based on the big lie. But why aren't Democrats, why aren't Democrats running on the issue of preserving free and fair elections and preserving voting rights? I don't see that so far. I've not seen that as a unifying message with a lot of money behind it in a nationwide ad campaign. Look at how Republicans nationalized the midterm congressional elections in 94. We're, we're both old enough to recall 1994 when Bill Clinton got hammered. Republicans nationalized the 1994 midterms around the so-called contract with America, which was a big lie. It was a bunch of garbage. The contract on America. Yeah, but they, they it worked though politically. They nationalized the elections and unified voters behind this. Democrats need to nationalize this election around Roe v. Wade, or certainly around the abortion issue and other issues, and they need to nationalize the election around 
preserving democracy and voting rights to overcome the big lie. Economic issues have often worked for Democrats. The 2018 elections, healthcare worked. It helped produce a big Democratic victory. But as you appreciate, as I know you know, Wayne, we're in a fight for the whole ballgame. If the one party left that believes in the Constitution doesn't have the courage to frame and fund a campaign, I mean, I mean show me the money. I, I want to see funding. I want to see the party devoting serious money to a national message around, hey, folks, you're going to lose your right to ever vote for the people you want in the future unless you oppose the party that is a mortal threat to those rights. I haven't seen that messaging, and I haven't seen the level of urgency in Congress to enact either voting rights or some of these basic safeguard provisions. Uh, they don't want to mess with the filibuster rule. I would just say President Biden should have gotten into this a lot earlier than he did and with a lot more forceful use of presidential arm twisting. Um, I, I sympathize with him. The Democrats never miss an opportunity. I mean, it's their weakness that attracts a lot of people to Republicanism uh, because Republicans, it's faux strength, it's fake, but it, they at least come the appearance of strength. They stand for the wrong things. On so many issues, the Republicans are wrong. But they stand, but at least they're standing. They project a sense that they're fighting for it and standing for it. Now, many, to be fair, many Democrats are share exactly the feelings that you and I have about this. They're in there fighting the good fight. And people like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and many others are right in there fighting this. I admire President Biden so much. He's done a lot of good things. If I could get President Biden's ear for five minutes, I would, I would say respectfully, Mr. President, you have to raise your game on this. You should realize as vice president to President Obama for eight years, he had a front row seat to the obstructionism and the, the developing threats to the democratic system that were already happening then. He has no excuse for not recognizing now the critical crisis that we're facing, but I haven't yet seen the urgency that's needed. Where's the presidential bully pulpit on this? We need more of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it seems it points that the president is stuck in a time where, where Republicans are still like Gerald Ford. It's disturbing because we need some serious leadership and we need it every single day to drive this message home. You mentioned the problem with the filibuster and you wrote a very interesting article on that. And you pointed out some statistics. States with far less than a majority of the national population, as little as 18 percent can now control the Senate. The 22 least populous states carried by Trump in 2020 contain a grand total of only 24% of the American people, but they are represented by 44 senators, uh, 42 which happen to be Republican. And then you call it the modern fake filibuster. And you say it's a hollow mockery of what it used to be. Explain what you mean by fake filibuster. The filibuster is fake. It's not real. That is, when someone calls a filibuster, they're not actually standing on the Senate floor without a bathroom break talking for 10 hours. Occasionally, you see senators do that, but that's, that's not the way they're blocking the legislation. Instead, it's a fake filibuster because they simply announce they're going to oppose a proposal, and unless the, the party in favor of the proposal can get 60 votes, 
it's dead on arrival. And everyone just gives up and goes home. It's a ridiculous, farcical, fake thing. It doesn't promote deliberation, contrary to the deeply mistaken claims of the filibuster's last few defenders, like Senators Cinema and Manchin. It doesn't even promote bipartisanship. It promotes gridlock. And it's not in the Constitution. And even many conservative Republicans used to recognize this because the Constitution says a quorum to do business is a majority. That word, majority, quote unquote, is in Article I of the Constitution. And the Constitution specifies uh, six or seven specific issues where a supermajority is required. The strong implication is that other than those issues, Congress should take action and legislate and confirm by simple majority vote. Democrats need to wake up and smell the coffee on this. You're very correctly noting the Senate, unfortunately, is severely stacked against uh, progressives and Democrats because it favors these small, sparsely populated states, which are bastions of right-wing Trumpism, extremist right-wing Trumpism. So, for example, statehood for the District of Columbia and offering statehood to Puerto Rico, if the people of Puerto Rico choose to accept it, those are critical measures. But that would slightly tilt the Senate back toward a more fair playing field. Unfortunately, it appears that the Democrats wouldn't even have a majority to get D.C. statehood through because Senator Manchin has said he's against it. But but we got to try and we definitely have to get rid of the filibuster. If, if you don't, getting rid of the, as I saw it, when I was writing about the filibuster last year, that's like the first essential step. If you're not willing to ditch the filibuster, you almost might as well throw in the towel and go home because you're not going to accomplish anything else. <laughs> Why else? And, and voters, understandably, are going to be angry at the Democrats. They elected Democratic majorities, narrow majorities, to the Senate and House. And then they see the Democrats not using those majorities to benefit the people and to defend our Constitution. And it's very demoralizing. And this year's Exhibit A, it's, it's been a disaster with the filibuster. We have, a, we have a question from one of our listeners. And the question was, the judges that uh, were trying to get on the Supreme Court lied, according to Senator Susan Collins, about whether they supported Roe v. Wade. Well, I would say Senator Collins, she has her own self-serving. I mean, she she's promoting the idea they lied to her well, to basically do a little bit of, if I can be a little impolite, a little CYA there, because she knew full well how Justice Kavanaugh is going to vote. I, and I would say no justice can ethically or honestly promise how they were vote in a case. And all of those Republican nominees very cleverly and very carefully avoided making any type of promise or commitment that you could hold them to. Were they deceptive? Were they misleading? Did they play a political game? Yes. And who was playing that political game right along with them? People like Senator Collins, Senator Manchin, a conservative Democrat, and others, they played the same dishonest game. So, you know, that, that criticism, it's true. You, you can't admire these justices. It's not a basis to impeach them. Strictly speaking, they didn't lie. They used mealy-mouthed uh, lawyer speak to answer those questions. So I, I have heard this argument. I totally sympathize with it. You know, these people are not people any of us should admire. But it's not perjury. No, it's not perjury. It's not, you can't impeach them for it. You can't prosecute for them. Okay. I'll tell you what, what uh, the one impeachable offense a current justice has committed, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, by failing to recuse himself in a case where his wife was obviously deeply involved 
with the with the stealing of the election and the and the Trumpian efforts to subvert the election, he absolutely was obligated under the law to recuse himself. There's no enforcement mechanism, but guess what? The U.S. House and the U.S. Senate are the enforcement mechanism when a Supreme Court justice violates the law. Now we don't have the votes to do it, so it's kind of it's sort of like a you know what's it's just sort of an academic discussion. But I would say. Clint Clarence Thomas has committed an impeachable offense by failing to recuse himself. And boy, if Democrats had the votes, I would be right there favoring his impeachment and his removal based on that. But Democrats should say right now and, and sell this to the American people, the very moment we do have the votes, he's gone. We will impeach in the very second. You elect enough of us, we will impeach this man because he and his big lie peddling treason wife have no place near the court. And they, they did violate their oath and their derelict in duty. I would frame it more generally that, you know, elect Democrats and we will generally, we will defend and enforce the Constitution. If Democrats ever have the luxury of having a majority with the ability to do these things, I think then we would want to have these more difficult conversations about exactly what do you do? Do you add justices to the court? Do you change the size of the court? How aggressively do you maybe seek to impeach some justices or judges? Those are all gonna be difficult conversations to have. As I've already said, I think there are ample reasonable grounds probably to impeach and remove Clarence Thomas. Realistically, the priority is for heaven's sakes, elect more senators who will confirm good justices and reelect a president who will appoint good justices. Several of the justices in the majority are in their 70s. They're not going to be there forever. We want to ensure that when turnover happens, as it inevitably will, just as Justice Ginsburg tragically died at the wrong time, we want to make sure that we have a president in office and a Senate in office who will replace those justices. And by the way, the good, the good part is they've trashed stare decisis certainly for the abortion issue. So guess what? When, when more justices who believe in constitutional rights are appointed, they'll overrule Dobbs and they'll restore Roe. And I, I personally have never actually believed much in stare decisis myself. I've always believed it's more important to get the constitutional issue right than simply to adhere to precedent. And so uh, Republicans are well aware of that. They know that if, if justices get appointed and the balance on the court shifts, that what was overruled once can be restored again. And frankly, it's frustrating as that's gonna take quite a while and tragically so many women and other Americans are gonna suffer in the meantime. And that angers me and it frustrates me, but that is the long game that progressives and Democrats need to focus on. So I would say channel that rage, channel that rage into organizing, voting and doing everything we can to safeguard our ability to have a free and fair vote. And then in due course, we've got a fighting chance to rebuild and restore. The most common defense of those on the right working to dismantle democracy is, we are not a democracy, we are a Republican. A democracy is mob rule. I want you to, to address the specious line of attack on democracy. Yeah, that one I would love to talk about because, again, I, I'm a career constitutional lawyer. You know, I, I have a lot of friends on all sides of the political and ideological spectrum. And there, there are a lot of conservative constitutional scholars out there who, who really are sincerely committed to studying the Constitution. And I, ironically, Amy Coney Barrett herself, I think on the abortion issue, she's beyond hope. She's ideologically a zealot and is committed on that issue. On other issues, perhaps, I still hold out the hope, it's a fairly dim hope, people might call me naive, that she might be open to some reasoned arguments because she was a highly respected 
constitutional law professor and was someone known for collegiality and being a thoughtful scholar. And uh, so my, my friends ranged the gamut from Marjorie Cohn, my wonderful colleague at Thomas Jefferson, who's a great progressive left theorist and essayist. But on this issue of the Constitution, I, I, you hear this often, these right-wing Republicans who say they believe in the text or the original understanding of the Constitution. And there are a lot of issues about originalism. It has downsides, upsides. I think progressives actually should recognize that we also have a stake in defending the text in the original understanding, because it guarantees some things like the right of the people to be secure from unreasonable search and seizure and the abri no abridgment of the freedom of speech. You know, that's in the text and, and that is original understanding. So we, we've got skin in the game in terms of the history and text of the Constitution. But these right wingers often, they don't even understand their own theory. They, they talk about the text of the Constitution but they're ignorant about exactly what it says. So Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who by the way has no excuses, he's a lawyer, his father was Solicitor General under Reagan, oh, he knows better. He has promoted this lie that you're talking about, oh, that the constitution says nothing about democracy, that we're really just a republic. And what I, what I would point out to those people is that the first three words in the constitution are we the people. It's in the preamble. And interestingly, there are two other, the next two provisions where the word the people appears in the Constitution. Article one, the people elect the House of Representatives. And then in the 17th Amendment, one of the great amendments that came out of the progressive era 100 years ago, the Senate is also elected by the people. Unfortunately, it's malapportioned toward these rural conservative states, but it is elected by the people. And so what does democracy mean? It's a word with a Greek root, demos and kratos. Demos means the people, kratos means rule. Democracy means rule by the people. Our constitution itself, the document itself says it is ordained and established by the people. So, yeah, so people will say the constitution is not democratic. They literally don't know what they're talking about. They literally have not even read the text of the constitution they claim to worship. And so what I often say as a constitutional law professor, don't, don't see the territory for the, when you hear these right-wing justices or these right-wing lawyers talk about originalism and the text, um, there are good reasons to question a single-minded or unbalanced focus on originalism as the only basis for constitutional interpretation. But also let's keep in mind, they very often are making bogus originalist arguments. They themselves misunderstand and misrepresent what the text says. Our constitution is very flawed in many ways, but if you seriously study the text in the original meaning, it is actually a profoundly progressive document in many ways, largely thanks to things like the women's suffrage amendment and the progressive era amendments and the post-Civil War reconstruction amendments. Without those amendments, the constitution would basically be a, a worthless piece of parchment drafted by a couple of slave-owning white men. But fortunately, we did, we did as a result of a civil war, enact amendments. And as a result of decades of struggle blood, sweat, and tears by American women, we enacted a suffrage amendment. And it's, it's the Constitution with those progressive amendments that I feel a loyalty to. And it's that text, and it's that understanding of the Constitution that I always tell my friends, my progressive friends, 
uh, you know, don't give up on the Constitution. Don't depict it as if the right wing has a monopoly on textual arguments or originalist arguments. So that's my spiel on that. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to War of the Words today. I'm your host, Wayne Besson. Please tune into the next episode for the second half of my interview with constitutional legal scholar, Ryan Wildenthal. We have a lot more to discuss. Please tell your friends about our podcast. We can be found on every single major platform, such as Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. Until we meet again, see you next time. Bye.